In May of 1944, Elie Wiesel and his family were put into the back of a cattle car, and what they were being called, they were going on a journey. The last two months for Elie and his family had been a whirlwind. In that time, Nazi forces had occupied their city. The town's elders and leaders had been arrested, and the Jewish population were forced to live in ghettos. And now in the back of a cattle car, they embarked on a journey, and it was so crowded, there's no room to sit down. They had to stand next to each other, shoulder to shoulder, hour after hour after hour. And as the train was were taking them on this journey, they, they eventually saw a structure in the distance that signified their destination was almost there. And at first, they really couldn't tell what this uh, pillar was that reached into the sky. But as they got closer and closer, it came into view, they realized it was the chimney of Auschwitz, Hitler's most deadly concentration camp. As the train pulls into the station, their new reality starts to set in. The whispers they had heard, the rumors, they were all true. Unloaded out of the back of a cattle car, single file, they marched inside the camp towards their extermination. And this is what Elie Wiesel writes in his memoir. He says, Never shall I forget that night, the first night in camp, which has turned my life into one long night, seven times cursed, seven times sealed. Never shall I forget those moments which murdered my God and my soul and turned my dreams to dust. Never shall I forget these things, even if I am condemned to live as long as God himself, never. Where is God in chaos? Where is God in the midst of evil and pain and suffering? Is God working in the most horrendous situations that we can conjure up in our minds? And if you're newer, newer to Genesis, this may be your first time at Genesis, and you thought church was a little more happy, a little more joyful, you weren't expecting the Holocaust illustration so soon in the sermon. Like, I promised you were going to get there, but I need us to sit in this for just a few moments. Right? Because like, we, we need to ask this question of where is God in the midst of chaos? Because all around the world, every day, even as we sit here, like, you realize most of the world lives in the midst of crazy amounts of evil. Right? So would you rather bury your head in the sand, pretend like it's not going on, not deal with the hard question, or would you rather take it on head first? Because whether you like it or not, whether you feel comfortable with it or not, the rest of the world is asking this question every day. We need to be too. Right? Like when you see the images on the news when Syria is chemically bombed by their own leader, and when you hear about terror organizations, kidnapping, torturing, murdering. When you hear statistics about the sex trade and the thousands and thousands of women and children who are enslaved, everybody is asking, where is God in that? Like, we need to be asking that question, too. And let me just, as a way of intro, say this up front, though. It's okay if your answer is, I don't know. 
Like, if you don't know how to answer that, that's 100% okay. When I was, uh, my wife and I lived in Minneapolis, and we were part of this ministry, and part of the ministry was we'd do evangelism every other weekend. And so we'd go and we'd walk, like the Mall of America, uh, the streets, and we'd talk to people about Christianity and faith. And without fail, every time, somebody would try to pin me against the wall with this question, where is God in the Holocaust? Where was God when the Twin Towers fell down? And every time I'd say, I don't know. Like, it's okay not to know. It's okay to struggle and to wrestle. But I'll also say this. It's not okay to confine God to your definitions or your ideas of what a good God should do or how a good God should act. Because I know how this conversation typically goes. It sounds something like, well, I just don't feel like a good God would allow this. Or I just don't think God would do this. Listen, we don't get the prerogative to say what God should do or how we should act. How you think, how you feel, God's not up in heaven changing what he's doing based off that. Right? God and God alone determines his own godness. You know what I mean? Like, so, it doesn't neglect the need to wrestle and question and think through hard topics, but it does give us boundaries. Namely, we let scripture inform us, not our thoughts and not our feelings. And because we're letting Scripture inform us, it gives us a reason to fight to understand. Right? It gives us a reason to struggle. Because I promise you, the fight is worth it. The struggle is worth it. If you're going to climb Mount Everest, it is going to be a struggle to get to the top. Right? But when you get to the top, you get a bigger, more grand vision of the beauty of creation. Well, this morning, as we take on this hard topic, we're not probably going to get to the top. But as we climb, it's going to be hard work, but hopefully you get a bigger, more grand picture of the beauty of God. And so if you have your Bible open to Exodus 2, and if I could summarize what Exodus 2 has to say about God and chaos, if I could summarize what I think the whole Bible has to say about God and chaos, I would say it like this. Where is God? God is in control of the chaos, even when the chaos seems out of control. So for the last two weeks, we've been in Exodus, and we've been trying to wrap our minds around what it would be like for an Israelite to be living in Egypt. Because if you're an Israelite living in Egypt, there's not a situation that feels more out of control. There's not a situation that feels more chaotic. So as a way of review, Pharaoh comes to power, and Pharaoh is hell-bent on containing the Israelites. And so he first says, I'm going to oppress these people so heavily that I'm going to beat the will to fight out of them. And so he puts slave masters over them, and they are just ruthlessly beating these people. And what does God do? God multiplies, right? And Israelites actually spread out and become more numerous. And so Pharaoh then says, okay, well, midwives, when the Hebrew women give birth to baby boys, I want you to kill the baby boys. And do you remember what happened last week? The midwives refused. And so Israelites continued to multiply, continued to spread out. And so Pharaoh then tells all his people, he says, if you see an infant Hebrew boy, I want you to throw him in the river. Okay, let that sink in. He just told hundreds of thousands of people, if not millions, I want you to go on an Egyptian boy killing spree. Imagine that for one second. People, you have like an Egyptian Gestapo kicking down your door to throw your baby boy in the Nile. 
And when you think Nile River, don't think Mystic River, right? Mystic River is seven miles long, and it's great for a nice day of kayaking. The Nile River is 4,000 miles in length. The Nile River is kicking out 6.2 million pounds of water in motion every second, right? This is like an infinite tidal wave full of snakes and crocodiles. That's what these babies are being thrown into. And so honest question, if you're living there, do you think God's in control of the chaos? Absolutely not. Like, I don't care how faithful you think you are. There's no way you're walking around saying, God's got this. God's working to the good of all those who trust in him. Like, no, this is pure panic and hysteria. People are freaking out of how chaotic this seems. And this is the situation that we find ourselves in in Exodus 2. So if you got your Bible, we're in Exodus 2, verses 1 through 10. And we're going to read how God takes control of the chaos, even if the chaos seems out of control. Starting in verse 1. Now a man from the house of Levi went and took as his wife a Levite woman. The woman conceived and bore a son, and when she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him three months. When she could hide him no longer, she took for him a basket made of bulrushes and daubed it with bitumen and pitch. She put the child in it and placed it among the reeds by the river bank. And his sister stood at a distance to know what would be done to him. Now the daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe at the river, while her young women walked beside the river. She saw the basket among the reeds and sent her servant woman, and she took it. When she opened it, she saw the child, and behold, the baby was crying. She took pity on him and said, This is one of the Hebrews' children. Then his sister said to Pharaoh's daughter, Shall I go and call you a nurse from the Hebrew women to nurse the child for you? Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Go. So the girl went and called the child's mother. And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Take this child away and nurse him for me, and I will give you your wages. So the woman took the child and nursed him. When the child grew older, she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. She named him Moses, because she said, I drew him out of the water. So these ten verses are the beginning of the end for Pharaoh. More so than the failed oppression, more so than the disobedient midwives. This is quite literally the birth of God's triumph over Pharaoh. This is God taking control of the chaos, even though the chaos seems out of control. And the craziest part is everybody missed it. People didn't see what was going on. So this is pure conjecture, right? Bible over here, this is pure conjecture. If you're an Israelite, you are wrestling with the same questions that we wrestle with. Where is God in evil? Where is God in pain? Where is God in suffering? And the whole time you're wrestling with this question, you're missing God quietly take control. So where is God in chaos? How does he take control? This is the first thing he does. He uses the power of the powerless. It, it breaks my heart, and honestly, it's really frustrating to me when Christianity gets accused of being patriarchal and misogynistic and oppressive towards women. Because if you would actually read the Bible, you would see God elevating women above cultural norms all the time. God uses women to accomplish his purposes all the time. In the ancient world, you do not have a more powerless people than women. And it's precisely that reason that God uses women to subvert Pharaoh. 
He's using the power of the powerless to take control. Because think about what we just read. Uh, in faith, his parents get married and mama conceives. And now we know from Hebrews 11 in the New Testament that mama bear, she ain't afraid of Pharaoh. She looks at her child and she says, I'm going to keep this child. I'm going to raise this child. I'm going to love and protect this child. Right? She has this stirring in her heart because God is using her. Now, if you think about trying to hide a baby for three months, what do babies do? They cry. They poop. They are not the easiest little buggers to hide. But because Moses' mom is just this wicked woman of faith, no, she protects this baby because God is using the powerless to take down the powerful. He's elevating women. She's the hero of the story. And so this faith-filled mother takes this baby, and when she knows it's time to trust this baby with God, she puts him in the riverbank. And who does she entrust to watch over him? His sister. Now, we can guess that his sister's about 10 years old. We can guess that because she's old enough to be walking around, and no one seems to question it, but she's not old enough to be put to work yet. So God is taking a 10-year-old girl, elementary age, to take down the most powerful man in the ancient world. Right? This is not princess parties and tea parties. This is a girl of faith that God is using to accomplish his will. So you have this school-aged girl watching Moses in the river. And then who finds Moses? It's Pharaoh's daughter. The daughter of psycho dad who's trying to do genocide. She sees the baby and she has compassion. She takes pity on the child and she wants to protect the child. Right? This is Pharaoh's own daughter subverting Pharaoh. This is God using women. And watch now how this trifecta plays out and tell me that God is not unbelievably awesome. So Moses' sister sees Pharaoh's daughter with Moses. So sister goes to daughter and says, I see you have a baby. Should I find you a nurse for him? Daughter says to sister, yeah, would you do that? So who does sister bring the baby to? Back to his mother. And now his mother starts nursing her own son. And tell me God doesn't have a sense of humor because it says that Pharaoh's daughter actually pays Moses' mother to nurse him and to raise him. And so after three or four years, Moses' mother now brings Moses back to Pharaoh's daughter. And Pharaoh's daughter now raises Moses in the very same household that tried to kill him. Like, ladies, come on. Do not tell me that God does not use women of faith to accomplish his will. God is using the power of the powerless to accomplish his purposes on the planet. When things seem chaotic, when it seems out of control, when it seems like there's no sign of hope, no, God is taking control by working through the most unlikely characters. No one expected some Hebrew slave woman. No one expected some Hebrew slave girl. No one expected Pharaoh's own daughter to undermine his decree. But they did. Because when God uses the powerless to take down the powerful, that's when God gets glory. How does God take control? He does it by the power of the powerless. And if you can just zoom out, God's been doing this all throughout history. The women take down Pharaoh. A shepherd boy named David's going to take down Goliath. A country monk named Martin Luther is going to take on the Catholic Church. A politician named William Wilberforce is going to take down the slave trade in England. God uses the powerless 
to take down the powerful. Where is God in chaos? He's in control, and it seems like he's not, because he's working through the powerless. So if we look at some horrendous circumstance on this planet, and we ask, God, where are you? Look where you least expect him. Look to the oppressed. Look to the marginalized. And there you're going to see God quietly taking control of the situation through their power. But God doesn't take control under the radar only by the powerless. He also does it by sending an unlikely savior. So all throughout the book of Exodus, we're going to see Moses function as a pre-Christ figure. And all I mean by that is uh, Moses is a foreshadowing of Jesus Christ. So Moses, he's, he's a warm-up. He's the preamble. If Christ is the person, Moses, he's going to be the photograph. So he's not God, but he functions in a way that points forward to the coming work and mission of Jesus Christ. And all of this is sitting right behind the text. You just kind of have to pull it back a little bit. Pay attention to details here, how God sends us an unlikely savior. Because it says that a Levite man marries a Levite woman. Okay, well, hold up for one second. We know what Moses' mom name is. He's going to tell us in like four chapters. We know what his father's name is. He's going to tell us in like four chapters. But that's not what's told here. Why? Because the point is the fact that they're Levites. And that's important because Levites will become the people who represent God to Israel and the people who represent Israel to God. So when you read this and you hear that this is a Levite man and a Levite woman, you've got a purebred Levite boy, your antenna should go up thinking, this child has got divine privilege. This kid has got a God-centered purpose because of just who he is, right? He's the unlikely savior that's being sent. And so you have a Levite woman, and she looks at her child, and she says, this is a fine child. Kind of a weird thing to say. It's an echo of Genesis 1 when God creates and says, this is very good. Right? When she looks at her child, it's the same phraseology here. It's this child is very good. This child has anointing. This child has been set apart by God for something special. It's the sending of an unlikely savior. So you have a Levite mom with a very fine child, and she takes this child, she puts him in a basket in the Nile River. Word for basket, peel back this onion one more layer, very rare word. Shows up twice in the whole Bible. Once here, the same word used to describe Noah and his ark. See, what does Noah's ark do? God rescues humanity in an ark through the flood water. Moses is put in an ark. He's going to rescue humanity coming out of the Nile. Right? God is sending an unlikely savior, and people are missing it the whole time. And then you get to the end of the story, and who is the only character named? It's Moses. Again, we know what his parents' names are. We know what his sister's name is, right? She's going to sing an awesome song in 13 chapters. Certainly Moses knew what his adoptive mother's name was. All those details are left out. Why? Because the point is that God takes control of the chaos, even when it seems like it's out of control, by sending an unlikely savior. That's what's trying to be highlighted. Where is God? God's in control even when the chaos seems out of control. He takes control by using the power of the powerless. He takes control by sending an unlikely savior. And I like those two lines. I like those two points. I felt good when I wrote them this week. But what, make those, what makes those lines good and true and right 
It's only based off this last truth. That God is in control of the chaos only because God is in the chaos. That stuff only makes sense and is only good if God is in the chaos. Because the whole book of Exodus, the whole story of Exodus, it's God entering into the sufferings of his people to rescue them, to redeem them for the sake of a relationship. When you read the story, it's saying that God does not sit in heaven with popcorn and watch. It's that knowing a very direct way with Moses, God enters in to show the Israelites and the Egyptians the same truth, that God is in control because God is in the chaos. And that truth that God is in the chaos, ultimately, that is the only hope that any of us have. Because if God could control chaos, but he chose not to, that's not a loving God. That's not a benevolent God. But if God we knew was pure love, and he couldn't control the chaos, well then that's actually not God. right? That's like a heavenly grandfather. But if God looks at the chaos right in the face and all the horrors of it, and he says, no, I'm entering into that. I will join you in it to defeat it. Well, then you have a Savior worthy of worship. The problem of suffering, it's only a problem if we're abandoned to it. But if God is in the chaos, working quietly, redeeming slowly, it's not a question of where is God. It's a question of do you believe all that the Scripture says God is. It's a question of do you believe God is sovereign when things seem out of control. Do you believe God is good when all you see is evil? Do you believe God is love when you see nothing but fear and suffering? And if you don't believe, if you're struggling to believe, if you're fighting to believe, then you look at what God has already done. Because when we talk about chaos, we almost always talk about chaos as brokenness between people. Right? We look at some awful situation and we rightly say, this is hell on earth. But the chaos we don't talk about, it's the brokenness between people and God. And that chaos, that's not hell on earth. That's just hell, period. Right? The most destructive chaos in your life right now, it's your sin. It's sin that perverts. It's sin that abuses. It's sin that corrupts. Right? It's sin that tries to elevate yourself and beat other people into submission metaphorically. Right? It's that sin that's precisely what Christ entered into. We didn't get abandoned to that sin. That's what Christ condescended into. So when Jesus Christ, he condescends, right? and it's under, it's under a death warrant from a king, just like Moses. And Christ condescends to redeem a people, just like Moses. But when Christ condescends into the chaos, he does what Moses couldn't do. He lets the chaos kill him. He lets the chaos crush him in order that we might have eternal peace. Where is God in chaos? The only hope we have is knowing that God is in the chaos, redeeming us in it, from it, giving us peace. I think the most powerful 
part of Elie Wiesel's memoir is he tells the story of three prisoners who get uh, hung in front of the rest of the prison camp to be made examples of. And so he talks about these three prisoners being marched in front of everybody and they're elevated and they're forced to stand on chairs. And then the nooses are put around their necks and the Nazi prison guards shout to scare the prison, uh, like the prison camp, not to, uh, not to misbehave. And then in one swoop, all the chairs are pulled out from underneath the prisoners and all three prisoners drop and hang. And then all the people in the camp are forced to walk right in front of the three prisoners hanging just as a final uh, moment of intimidation. And this is how he recounts that moment. He says, Then came the march past the victims. The two men were no longer alive, but the third rope was still moving. The child, too light, was still breathing. And so he remained for more than half an hour, lingering between life and death, writhing before our eyes. And we were forced to look at him close range. Behind me I heard one man asking, For God's sake, where is God? And from within me I heard a voice answer, Where is he? This is where, hanging from the gallows. Faisal, although he didn't intend it, was 100% correct. Where is God in chaos? He's hanging in the gallows. That's what the cross of Christ is all about. God in the gallows, that's the gospel. You want to be rescued from chaos? You want to be rescued from evil? You want to be rescued from eternal suffering? You look to Christ on the cross and you see him there for you. You see him there in sin, dying to give you life, dying to give you himself. You look at Christ in the gallows and you believe in your heart, you confess with your mouth that he is Lord. That's where God's at in the chaos. That's how he takes control of chaos. No matter how bad it looks, no matter how awful it may seem, no, he's taking control in the chaos because God is in the gallows. And so if I could, if I could just give a two-minute gospel plea this morning. If you don't know Jesus Christ this morning, if you have never made that decision to lay down your life and follow him, there is a chaos in your life that cannot be medicated. There is a chaos in your life that is separating you from God forever. And every day you go on not living under his lordship, you are taking one step closer to the gallows. But if you'd confess your sin, if you'd believe in Christ, if you would call him Lord, then you can look and see Christ in the gallows for you, hanging to give you life, hanging to give you himself, taking control of the chaos, even though it seems like it's out of control. By and large, uh, for whatever reason, we are not... Uh, experiencing the horrors of humanity that most people live with. Right? Not to the extent they do. That does not neglect the chaos that's in our lives. It is silly to compare suffering. Because I know in this room right now there are people who are feeling real pain, real trauma, real evil. 
who are feeling suffocated by chaos in your life. And I know in this room, if you're not in that season, well, your season of chaos is coming. Right? That's just how life is. And when you feel chaos come up, when you feel like it's out of control, and you say, God's word is faithful, God's character is faithful, God's promises are faithful, and I can know that God is in control of the chaos, even when it seems out of control, because God is in the chaos.